Dear friends, it is a, a delight to be back to St. Peter and St. Paul's. Uh, for a little while now, I've had an assignment under Bishop Dan to stand with you, which is my joy. Most of the time, that means wherever I am at home, usually, uh, cheering and praying for you, and as possible, watching the services. And uh, what, what a delight it is, and how blessed, what wonderful worship and great words which are preached week by week. You are a blessed people. Uh, and so for me uh, and my wife this time to be with you, just to enjoy what God is doing uh, in this time uh, is, is a great delight. It's also uh, a delight to be, have the privilege of opening the Word of God. Now I do want to say that um, I will not be able to be with you, which is my loss, on Easter Sunday. Um, but I'm saying that in part because I would really love your prayer. Um, starting next Sunday, which is Palm Sunday, um, I'll be at St. John's Richmond in BC. And for eight consecutive days, uh, I'll be with that congregation all through Holy Week. Um, I was invited actually right here, right, in that, right there, uh, by, uh, during Synod. Uh, to come and do this, so I made that commitment back in November. Uh, my goal is to preach uh, from Matthew 21 through Matthew 28, and if I know you're a praying people and lots of you pray, there are in the back uh, some things called the week that changed the world, uh, and it'll give you the passages which are going to be considered week, uh, day by day, and I would be grateful if you would pray for me, but especially for all who will gather in all sorts of settings. Anyway, that's happening, and uh, don't be confused. This is not for St. Peter and St. Paul's plans. You've got better plans, but, but these are for them, and we'd appreciate your prayer for them as well. Well, having said that I'm not going to be here on Easter, I'm grateful to be here on Passion Sunday. And I want to say that um, I... I think that we are high, greatly indebted to the Apostle John for what the Holy Spirit led him to write for the Gospel of John and to 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the three letters, and then the Revelation of John. And uh, one of the things which I have found uh, is that I believe John is very explicit as to what he's praying for as he was writing. What he's praying, not just for those who were going to read it way back when, 2,000 years ago, but for us today. And let's listen, this is from 1 John. I'm not preaching on 1 John, but I couldn't resist this because I think it gives you a sense of what the goal of John is for you and me. He says, that, speaking of Jesus, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And I noticed that Pastor Ben, right at the beginning of the service, pointed us to exactly that. John's prayer 
And clearly the Holy Spirit's goal is for all of us to come to know the Lord Jesus and in fact find life in his name. And that's the goal of this sermon as well. Now, we're going to look at the gospel reading, which is John 11, and if you want to turn to that in, uh, in your Bibles, if you have one handy, we're going to go a little bit further. Actually, we're going to try to quickly look at the whole uh, chapter, but let me say a little bit about the gospel of John. John wanting us to come to know the Lord Jesus and put our trust in him and find life in his name had the perspective of thinking of his life, the life of Jesus, this brief period of time of some three years in his earthly pilgrimage ministry, public ministry. So the way I, he did that was, first of all, he, he gave accounts of, of some conversations which the disciples like John were in on. Some were with just them, like John 13 to 17. Others were in the midst of great controversy with the religious leaders, a real showdown, give and take going on. But meanwhile, in all of that, Jesus does at least seven times says, I am. I am the bread of life. All metaphors to help us understand who Jesus is and what he wants for us in relationship to him. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine. And one of the I am's is found in this John 11 passage. Hang around, stick, you got to wait to hear a little more about that. Having said that, not only are there seven I am's, but there were seven uh, what he calls signs. Seven dramatic episodes where Jesus, as the very Son of God, uh, brought healings and multiplied five loaves and two fish uh, to feed 5,000 men plus women and children, etc. Uh, walked on water, um, healed a man uh, born blind. All of these things were given by Jesus and performed as a means of a show and tell to enable us to get to know Jesus. So that, for instance, at the end of the episode of what I'm calling an episode, where Lazarus is ill and it ends up him dying, later Jesus raises him to life. You, I'm sure you're, you may well be familiar of this event. Just before that happened, the raising, it says this, so they took away the stone, the stone, just as there had been a stone in front of the grave of Jesus, there was a stone in front of the grave of Lazarus. They took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, listen to this, that they may believe that you have sent me. What he was about to do was supposed to, like in neon lights and sound, make it clear that the Father had sent him. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Drum roll. And they all watched as, at the gaping hole of the, of the grave to see what would happen. There are five things that I want you for us to consider in this getting to know Jesus from, the, from this event. The first one is that it's very clear that Jesus, 
The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are strategic. That there is a plan. That there is a plan which he is working out. That in fact, when you read this full scope or the meta-narrative of the scriptures from, John, or from Genesis 3.15, where we hear about the fact that a Savior was coming who would crush the head of the serpent and all the way down through the course of time and all of scriptures and then through the gospel events, all of these things were preliminaries leading to an event, a week that will change the world. And that in fact, what I'm submitting to you is that this event, the raising of Lazarus from death, was the dress rehearsal of Jesus, which spoke eloquently of what he himself was going to have to go through in death, but on the third day rise. And so we have this momentous event. Uh, and what was going on is that we find out that in fact, all of this was planned step by step. And in fact, Jesus had a keen concern not only for the plan, but for timing. He would not be distracted from what, uh, or, just, or prematurely do what he wasn't supposed to do. So remember in John 2 when, uh, when they ran out of wine at the wedding and his Mary said they're out of wine. He said, my hour has not yet come. Of course, then he did change water to wine. Later in John 7, his brothers somewhat mockingly said, you know, if you're such a hot shot, this is my very poor paraphrase, you should go to the big city, Jerusalem. That's where it's all happening. Jesus said, my time has not yet come. But then a few days later, he did quietly slip into Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. So that when, for instance, in John 8, at the end when he said, before Abraham was, I am, it says they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. See, his time had not yet come. His time had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. But he had an eye for that time. And in fact, in Mark 10, it talks about him striding towards Jerusalem in such a way that those who watched were terrified just by the sheer evidence of his resolve. He had a sense he's strategic in nature. That should be encouragement to us because a lot of the time we don't get the plan at all, but he does and he knows what he's doing and his time is right. And so it is that finally, it, uh, in, at the end of John 10, again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him after he said, I and the Father are one. It says, my Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And so Jesus and his disciples uh, decide, because his hour has not yet come, to go to Judea around the place where John the Baptist had done his baptizing. And so in a sort of low profile way, they're in holding pattern as it will for that day which is yet to come. That's where Jesus and the disciples are. And not too far away in Bethany is his friend Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And word comes that in fact, Lazarus is ill. By John 13, his hour had come. Listen to this. This is the Passover meal. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, 
to, to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Is this not good stuff? During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. And of course, that's where he washed the disciples' feet. His hour had come. Jesus is strategic and is all about timing. That's point number one we see in this episode. Secondly, we discover in this very incredible event that Jesus has declared war on death. Make no mistake, Jesus considers death a horrible enemy, not something to be made peace with a horrible enemy that had to be defeated by only he could do it by his own death. And so it was that when word came that Lazarus was ill, and they said, Lord, he whom you love is ill, and he really did love him. But when Jesus heard this, verse 4, the illness, he said, does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. He's declaring war on death. He's going to demonstrate that in fact he will deal with death in a very important way and it's going to be seen through the raising of Lazarus. Later he said our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I go to awaken him verse 11 and then later he had to say Lazarus has died and for your sake I'm glad. He's not glad that he died but I'm glad because I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. When he met Martha and she said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus said, your brother will rise again. She said, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection. And it's like he sort of grabbed her face. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus declaring war on death because he loves life. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, we hear in John 10. But Jesus said, I've come that you might have life. And the only way that could happen is if he is the resurrection and the life. Even though he die, yet shall he live. And so it is that when Jesus stood at that grave and said, take away the stone, there is kind of a, a terseness about his voice, in my opinion, he's saying, take away that stone. Because it was an affront. It spoke about death. It spoke about holding down a good man. They discouraged this, but he insisted, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they rolled back the stone, and he shouted, and in my opinion, there's anger in his voice. Lazarus, not towards Lazarus, he loves Lazarus, but towards this horrible enemy death. Lazarus, come out. And of course he did. What a scene that was. The man who had died came out with his hands and feet bound with linen strips as they would have been and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. Death is a horrible enemy, and anything that smacks of it 
he wanted to deal with. He declared war on death. And John 11 speaks about that. Thirdly, Jesus receives with grace and passion. And I believe he even welcomes our protestations when we perceive and complain that Jesus has not acted or delivered according to our expectations. This is a passage which is all about, to start with, disappointment in terms of expectations. Your friend whom you love is ill. Nudge, nudge. Get over here right, right quick. But he didn't. He stayed. And then, if, my if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been here, my brother would have... These are dear people that Jesus loves who are declaring the obvious with broken hearts because Jesus did not deliver on their expectations in the ways that they expected. Did Jesus slap their hands and say, how dare you question my methods? Who do you think you are? There was none of that. It was actually loving engagement such that he's taking them and drawing them to himself because that's not so much a direct answer, but a person to know and to find life in him. My wife and I have been making our way through a little book called The Psalm on the Cross, which is a meditation by Canon David Roseberry on Psalm 22. You know the psalm where it starts, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which, of course, Jesus said as quoted in Matthew and Mark, Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani, and even uh, they quoted an Aramaic, which he evidently would have said. Roseberry, like the great preacher Charles Spurgeon, suggests that in fact Jesus would have had Psalm 22 almost certainly memorized. And that in fact, as, as he was going through the horrors of the cross, it was like he was going through the psalm and it was enabling him to deal with what he had already knew was coming, but now in real time he's living through. And so it's not only a psalm which speaks graphically, prophetically, about the fact that they, they, the soldiers uh, wagered on his garments or that they pierced his hands and his feet before the, the very cruci crucifixion had even been invented or that they mocked him. He saved others, let him save himself, you know, etc. All these things were part, of, and then more than that, there is such an, uh, an incredible description of what crucifixion would have been like. He talks in terms, and I remember at Theological College, one of my fellow members was a medical doctor who spoke about Psalm 22 and how clearly it portrayed what Jesus must have been feeling and Psalm 22 spoke of before. Now, what you need to know what this is all about is to say that it's all pretty sad and hard and graphic. Jesus absolutely knowing the abandonment of the Father who turns his face at his time of need because he had to for Jesus to die on the cross. But by verse 22, things pivot, and it goes from sense of loss and sadness and horror to hope. says by verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He's not just talking about himself. He's talking to you and me in our brokenness and affliction. 
For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Those are the realities. That's what's really going on, though at times it feels like the opposite. He receives with grace our protestations when we say, you didn't deliver the way we thought you would. Fourthly, Jesus suffers for us and suffers with us. Remember Emmanuel, God with us, God for us? Well, he suffers for us and with us. Shortest verse of the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35, part of this account. Though Jesus knew in a few moments he was going to raise Lazarus from death, he's overcome by the sadness and the horror of death and what it was doing to all the people he loved and himself. Shortest verse of the Bible, Jesus wept. He suffers with us and he suffered for us. So what's the goal of all this that Jesus makes very clear and the Gospel of John makes very clear? It is that in fact we are meant to go through this which takes us to trust and believe in this Jesus. That's the goal. That's what's meant to happen more and more in our lives. The whole gospel at the John 20, uh, John said, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. What's the big deal about believing? Why does Jesus consider it to be the key that opens the door? In fact, in John 6, when, the, when those who had been fed by the feeding of the 5,000 and were still enjoying the, the good benefit of that food, filling their tummies, thought this could be a good thing, hang around with this guy all the time. And Jesus said, you know, you're not here for signs, but you're here for your stomachs. I relate to this. But uh, he said, labor not for this but for the things of God and so they said what is the work of God he said the work of God is that you believe on him whom he has sent God's goal for you and me is trust in Jesus more trust more trust more trust because it's never foolishly applied in fact the deal about believing and having faith in fact, Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Believing is the goal of the gospel because it speaks of truth. The truth of who Jesus is. If you put your trust in him, you're not a fool. You're a wise person because he's the only one worthy of your trust. It speaks of truth about who Jesus is. It acknowledges the truth of our need for a savior. If you put your trust in him and not in yourself, you're a wise person because you are lost without him and you are hopeless and broken without him. You are like the rest of us, a sinner. But in fact, when you put your trust in him, you discover that he alone, the truth alone, has paid for our sin and made a way for us, the perfect for the imperfect, that he might bring us to God, Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18. And it's the heart and life of total commitment and trust and believing which is the goal that Jesus has for us. Dear friends, you knew all this already. 
I haven't said one thing that you didn't know already. But I pray that by the Holy Spirit, the recounting of these things one more time would be for some a first-time commitment to Christ, but for most who are here and maybe who are online whenever you watch it, it will be a strengthening, a growing. More trust, more faith, more believing is what we're made for. And it's what makes Jesus happy. So that, for instance, in Matthew 8, when the centurion said, I know what it is to have authority. I say to this soldier, go, and he goes, and to this one, come, and he comes. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. Jesus was thrilled. Why? Because the guy was expressing faith in the word of Jesus as being true, as he is true. Would you stand with me as we pray? Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that for that dress rehearsal with Lazarus and his two sisters that you love so much. We marvel at your capacity to stay away and then come. And we're so grateful for the demonstration which you made, which spoke of, of your power over death and also condemned you to die in order to defeat death, rob it of its sting, and to, and to, in the third day, rise never to die again. Lord, would you fill us by your Holy Spirit with deep and abiding and growing trust, daily increasing by your Holy Spirit more and more. For we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.